0: Before the Demogorgon, before the mind flayer, terror wore a human face. This is Suspicious Minds, the first official Stranger Things novel, a New York Times bestseller, written by Gwenda Bond. July 1969, Hawkins National Laboratory, Hawkins, Indiana. The man drove an immaculate black car along a flat Indiana road, slowing when he came to a chain link gate with a restricted area sign. The guard stationed there peered in the window for the briefest moment, then checked his license plate and waved him through. The lab clearly anticipated his arrival, Maybe they'd even follow the directions and specifications he'd sent ahead about preparing his new domain. When he reached the next guard booth, he cranked down the window to present his identification to the soldier serving as security guard. The soldier studied his license and avoided looking him in the eye. People often did. He had nothing but attention for new people, but at at least at first an assessment quick as a thought, cataloging them, sex, height, weight, ethnicity, and from there, a guess at intelligence, and then, most important, a guess at potential. Almost everyone was less interesting after the last, but he never gave up. Looking, assessing, was second nature, a crucial element of this work. Most people had nothing to interest him, but those who did, they were why he was here. This soldier was easy to size up. Male, 5 foot 8 inches, 180 pounds, white, average intelligence, potential. Fulfilled by sitting in a guard booth checking IDs with a sidearm he probably never used at his hip. Welcome, Mr. Martin Brenner. The soldier said violently, violently, squinting between the man and the plastic card. Funny that that his ID contained some of the information Brenner would have wanted if he were looking at himself. Male, six feet, one inches, 195 pounds, white. The rest, genius IQ, potential, limitless. We were told to expect you, the soldier added. Dr. Brenner, he corrected the man, but gently. The narrowing of a gaze that still didn't quite look at Brenner but darted into the back seat where five-year-old Subject Eight slept curled against the door. Her hands were balled into fists under her small chin. He preferred to oversee her transport to the the new facility himself. Yes, Dr. Brenner, the guard said. Who's the girl? Your daughter? The skepticism came through. Eight skin was his rich shade of brown in contrast to his own milky white pale hue, which meant Brenner could have told the man meant nothing. But it was none of the man's business. And besides, it wasn't wrong. Brenner was no one's father. Father figure, yes. That was as far as it went. I'm sure they're waiting for me inside. Brenner studied the man again. A soldier back home from a past war. A war they'd already won. Unlike Vietnam. Unlike the quiet escalation with the Soviets. They were already engaged in a war for the future. But this man didn't know that. Burner kept his tone friendly. I wouldn't ask questions when the other subjects arrive. Confidentiality. The guard's jaw tightened, but he let it go. His eyes flicked to the sprawling, multi-story complex behind them. Yes, they're waiting for you inside. Park anywhere you'd like. Another thing that hadn't needed saying, he drove on. A boring part of the federal bureaucracy had paid for the construction and general maintenance of this facility. The more secretive arms of the government had paid for its outfitting to Brenner's specifications. To be top secret, after all, the research couldn't be advertised. The agency understood greatness couldn't always follow standard operating procedure. The Russians might be able to have their labs acknowledged by their government, but they were willing to suppress all the voices who could speak out in opposition. Somewhere right now, the communist scientists were doing the same type of experiments this five-story brown complex and its basement levels had been created for. Brenner's employers would be reminded of this whenever they forgot or had too many questions, so his work remained a top priority. A continued to sleep as he got out and walked around to her door. He slowly opened it, pressing her back so so she wouldn't tumble out into the parking lot. He'd sedated her for safety while traveling. She was too important an asset to leave to other people. Thus far, The other subject's abilities had proven disappointing. Eat? He crouched by the seat and gave her shoulder a gentle shake. The girl shook her head, keeping her eyes shut. Callie, she mumbled, her real name. She insisted on it. Usually he didn't humor her, but today was special. Callie, wake up, he said your home she blinked a spark lighting in her eyes she had misunderstood your new home he added the spark dimmed you'll like it here he helped her sit upright and coached her forward he extended his hand now papa needs you to walk in like a big girl and then you can go back to sleep at last she reached out and slid her hand, small hand, into his. As they approached the front doors, he put the most pleasant smile in his arsenal on his lips. He expected the current acting administrator to greet him, but insisted. But instead, found a long line of lab-coated men and one woman waiting. The professional staff of his group, he supposed, and all of them radiating and a queasy case of nerves a tan man with a lined face too much time out of doors Stepped forward and offered his hand he looked at eight then back at Dr. Brenner his rim glasses were smudged Dr. Brenner I'm Dr. Richard Moses acting principal investigator we're so excited to have you some of your caliber we wanted you to meet the entire team right away and this must be I'm Callie, the girl said with drowsy effort. A very sleepy young lady who would like to see her new room, Dr. Brenner sidestepped the man's hand. I believe I asked for one set apart, and then I'd like to meet the subjects you've brought on board. Brenner spotted the doors off the lobby that looked the most secure and headed in their direction with eight silence trailed him for a long moment his smile became almost real before disappearing dr moses of the smudged glasses scrambled and caught up with him the others clattering rushed behind right behind him moses lunged ahead to buzz an intercom and gave his name there was an unsettled hum of conversation among the other doctors and lab associates who followed them. Of course, the subjects haven't been prepared, Dr. Moses said as the double door swung open. He kept glancing at Callie, who was getting more alert alert by the second, taking in their surroundings. No time to waste getting her settled in. Two armed soldiers stood matchstick straight just inside the doors, an optimistic sign that at least the security wasn't subpar. They checked Dr. Moses' badge, and he waved them away from a similar check to Dr. Brenner. He hasn't gotten his ID yet, he said. The men moved as if they might challenge Dr. Moses, and Brenner's approval rose another notch. I have it the next time I come through, he said. And we'll get you copies of the subject's paperwork. He nodded discreetly to indicate eight. The soldier inclined his head and the entire group passed. I specified I wanted to meet the new subjects when I arrived, Dr. Burns said. So it shouldn't come as a surprise. We thought you'd just be observing, Dr. Moses said. Should we get some parameters, prepare them for your visit? It might disrupt the work we've been doing. The psychedelics make some of them paranoid. Dr. Brenner held up his free hand. No, I don't think that or I'd have said it. Now where are we going? Light fixtures dangled above the long hallway, emitting the ghastly glow that so often illuminated scientific discovery in this shadow world. For the first time that morning, Dr. Brenner felt like he could make this a home. This way, Dr. Moses said. He found the lone woman on the professional staff in the herd and addressed her. Dr. Parks, can you arrange for one of the orderlies to bring the girl some food? Her lips tightened at at being sent to do the equivalent of woman's work, but she nodded. To Dr. Brenner's relief, eight stayed quiet, and they soon came to a small room with a child-sized bunk bed and drawing table. He'd asked for the bed to reassure Eight he was searching for appropriate companions for her. She spotted it immediately. For a friend? Sooner or later, yes, he said. Now someone's waiting is someone's going to bring you some food. Can you wait here long? She nodded. Whatever perkiness she gained from the excitement of arriving was fading. The sedative had been a strong dose and she sank onto the edge of the bed. Dr. Brenner turned to leave and ran into an orderly and the one female staffer. Dr. Moses raised his eyebrows. She'll be okay on her own, he asked. For now, Dr. Brenner said, and to the orderly, I know she looks like a child, but follow your security protocols. She might surprise you. The orderly shifted uncertainly, but kept quiet. Take me to the first room, Dr. Brenner said. Everyone else can go wait with your subjects, but there's no need to prep any of them. The rest of the assembled team waited for Dr. Moses to concur, and he gave a pained shrug. As Dr. Brenner says, they dispersed. They were learning. The first room housed the subject ineligible for the draft due to a club foot. He had the permanently fried look of someone who's disengagement tool of choice was marijuana average in every way do you want us to dose the next patient Dr. Moses asked he plainly didn't understand Dr. Brenner's methods I will tell you when I need something Dr. Moses nodded and they proceeded through five more rooms it was as he expected two women neither exceptional in any way Three more men, completely unexceptional, except perhaps in their lackluster quality. Gather everyone in the room so we can talk, Dr. Brenner said. He was left to wait in the conference room with a nervous glance from Dr. Moses. Soon enough, the group from before entered and arranged themselves around the table. A couple of men tried to make conversation in order to pretend none of the morning's events were unusual. Dr. Moses shushed them. That's all of us, he said. Dr. Brenner gave his staff a closer look. They would need work, but there was potential in their quiet attention. Fear and authority went hand in hand. All the test subjects I met this morning can be mis- dismissed. He waved a hand. Pay them whatever they were promised and assured they remember their non-disclosure agreements. The room absorbed this. One of the conservationists from before raised his hand. Doctor? Yes? My name is Chad, and I'm new to this, but why? How will we do our experiments? Why is always a question that moves science forward, Dr. Brenner said. Chad the newbie nodded, and Brenner added, Although one should be careful about asking it of your superiors, but I will tell you why. It's important we all understand that we're here. What we're here to do? Does anyone have a guess? His treatment of CAD, Chad kept them from kept them quiet. He thought for a moment the woman might speak up, but she simply folded her hands in front of her. Good, he said. I don't like guesswork. We're here to advance the frontiers of human capability. I don't want the common mus musculus of humans. They are not going to give us extraordinary results. He swept a gaze around the room. Everyone was intent. I'm sure you've heard of some of the foibles elsewhere. And your own lack of results are why I'm here. There have been embarrassments, and a great many of them can be sourced to inadequate subjects. Whoever thought prisoners and the asylum bound would tell us anything we need to know were fooling themselves. Draft dodgers and potheads aren't any better. I have a few more young patients transferring here for a related program, but i like a range of ages. There is every reason to believe that a combination of chemical psychedelics and the right inducements can unlock the secrets we need. Think of the intelligence advantages alone if we can persuade our enemies to talk. If we can make them suggestible and exert control but we can't get the results we want without the right people, period. It is nothing to manipulate a weak mind. We need those with potential. But where will we get them? Chad asked. Brenner made a mental note to have him dismissed at the end of the day. He leaned forward. I will set forth a new screening protocol for identification of better candidates from our feeder universities, and then select the subjects we were... We use going forward myself. Soon, your real work begins here. No one objected. Yes, they were learning. That's the end of the prologue. Chapter 1 Just a Test. July 1969, Bloomington, Indiana. Terry pushed open the screen door and winced at the fragrant haze of smoke inside the apartment. Her waitress uniform, reddish pink with a white apron, would go from smelling like stray grease spatters and coffee spills from the diner to smelling like weed in no time. She added laundry to the next day's list. At least summer session meant less homework. Finally, babe, you're here. Andrew waved to her as he handed off a joint to the next person next to him. His enthusiastic greeting earned him a smile. His brown hair had gotten long and shaggy, and it cradled his jaw on either side like parentheses. She liked it. It made him look a little dangerous. Did I miss anything good? she asked, shimmying through the crowd as the people she knew said hi. Her sister Becky sat in the recliner, glued to the 19-inch black and white television Andrew's friend. Dave had gotten as a hand-me-down from his old man after he upgraded to a new color screen for this momentous occasion. Apollo 11 had landed that afternoon. Are you kidding? Dave shouted. There was music playing too. CCR's bad moon rising, wafting out from a turntable, blending with the excited babble of Walter Cronkite from the TV. Everything our men have been on the moon for hours now. Where have you been? Working, Andrew said, and pulled her into his lap. He smoothed her dirty blonde hair back and pressed his lips to the side of her cheek. She's always working. Some of us don't have parents sending rent money, she said. He and Dave did, and it was why they had such a nice place instead of a dorm room. Becky met her eyes, at acknowledgement, before turning her attention back to the TV. Terry planted her lips softly on the side of Andrew's neck. He murmured approval. Her roommate Stacy tottered over, obviously a few beers and joints worse for the wear. Her curly hair her curly black hair hung in a frizzy ponytail on its way to falling down, and her shirt was untucked. Her, arm, her underarm soaked with sweat. She'd have the day off and had clearly enjoyed it. We need to get you less sober, Stacy said, stabbing a finger at Terry. The woman has a point. Dave tried to pass back the joint, but Stacy intercepted it and took a long took. Get her a beer. Terry doesn't smoke. Before Dave could argue, Andrew said, it makes her paranoid, which was almost true. Terry's first experience with getting high had been the, defin- dict- the, dif- the dictionary definition of of unpleasant. Everyone else called it a a hallucination, but she still believed she'd seen a ghost or something like one. But she wasn't into other people making her mind up for her. It's a special occasion, the moon and all. She reached out and plucked the joint from Stacy's fingers, took a brief hit and managed not to cough, then handed it back. I'll get my own beer, she said, jumping up and making her way to the kitchen. A toy chest filled with a wanting supply of ice and beer sat in the middle of the floor. She picked out a can of slits and rubbed it against her cheek as she walked back to the living room. The summer heat was compounded by the crush of bodies in the apartment, no match for the single-winded AC unit. By the time she got back to the couch, Stacy was in the middle of a story. Terry sat back on Andrew's lap to listen. Stacy waved her hands around. So this lab rat guy gives me fifteen bucks. Fifteen dollars? That got Terry's attention. For what? That psych experiment I signed up for, Stacy said, easing down into the middle of the floor facing Terry. I know. It seems cool, but then... She paused to shudder. Then what? Terry leaned forward, finally cracking her beer and taking a sip. Andrew looped his arms around her waist to keep her from falling. This is where it gets weird, Stacy said. She reached back to smooth her ponytail and ended up accidentally taking it the rest of the way down. In the flicker of the black and white TV, Her face seemed suddenly haunted as she talked, curly hair in wild lumps. He leads me into this dark room where there's a gurney and has me lay down there. "Uh Uh-oh. I think I know what the fifteen bucks was for, Dave said. Both both Stacy and Terry shot him a look, but Andrew laughed. Boys being boys, thinking they were absolutely hilarious. Go on, Terry said with an eye roll. What happened? He takes all my vitals, pulses, listens to my heart, has his big notebook. He's writing it all down in, and then. Stacy shook her head. This is going to sound nuts, so, but he gave me an injection, and then put a, a tab of something, that dissolved under my tongue. After a while, he started asking me all these weird questions. What kind of questions? Terry was gripped. Why on earth would someone give Stacy $15 for this? In a lab? I can't remember. Just answering them, it's all foggy. Whatever he gave me, it was like taking a hit from the worst batch of acid in history. I didn't feel right afterward. This was Friday, Terry asked. Why didn't you say anything before now? Stacy turned her head to look at Walter Cronkite, then back. It took me a day or two to wrap my head around it, I guess. She shrugged. I'm not going back. Wait. Andrew put his head next to Terry's, propping it on her shoulder. They wanted you to come back? Fifteen bucks per session, she said, and it's still not worth it. What did they tell you it was for, Terry asked. They didn't, Stacy said, and now I'll never know. Andrew's incredulity radiated. I'll do it. I don't mind taking bad asses for that kind of money. That would never cover our rent. That would cover our rent for a month. Sounds easy. Stacy made a face at him. Your parents cover your rent and they only want women. I told you what the $15 was for, Dave said. Stacy picked up a pillow and flung it at him. He dodged. I'll do it, Terry said. Uh Uh-oh, Andrew said. The girl most likely to change the world is reporting for duty. I'm just curious, Terry said and made a face at him. And that's not what this is. She would never lived down that yearbook caption, or the way she always had a million questions to ask about everything. Her dad had taught her to always pay attention. She didn't want to miss a chance to do something that mattered. It was frustrating enough to live so far from San Francisco or Berkeley, where the seismic shifts in culture were taking place, where challenging the government's policies on the war was a daily part of life, not something half the people around still looked at you weird for, even if they privately agreed. So what if none of her questions had ever panned out into anything? Maybe this time would be different, and she'd get an extra $15. Would that kind of pay off? Becky would make a peep of protest. Huh? Stacy blinked. Terry committed. I'll go in your place and do the experiment, if you're really not going back. I'm really not, Stacy said and shrugged. But if you think Pot makes you paranoid, I don't care. We could use the money. That's why I'm doing it. So what if it was a lie? Becky nodded to her, approving, just as Terry had known she would. And then Dave bellowed, Everyone quiet. Turn off the music. Something's happening. Andrew spoke in her ear as the music died. You sure you want to go see the lab rat guy? I know you like you like to have the answers to everything, but you're just jealous you can't go, she said, tilting her beard to her lips for another then then dirt and fuel flavored sip. True, babe, true, he said. The volume got cranked louder, and everyone watched as Neil Armstrong emerged and made his way, halting step by halting step down the ladder. Dave looked over his shoulder for a second. We can put a man on the moon, but they still haven't figured out how to get him out of NOM. You said it, Andrew said. Grumbles of agreement sounded around the room until Dave su- shushed them, despite the fact he'd been the one who... W- talked in the first place. There was a pause on the screen, and then Armstrong said, Okay, I'm going to step off the limb now. No one breathed. The room was as quiet as space supposedly was, an absence of sound. But in this absence, nervous hope. And then he did it. The astronaut in the bubble suit, designed to protect him from another world's atmosphere, and strange germs, set his feet on the barren and beautiful surface of the moon. Armstrong spoke again. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. They've jumped up and down, and then the entire room began to cheer. Andrew spun Terry in a circle. The moment, a dazzle of celebration and wonder. Walter Cronkite seemed close to tears, and so did Terry. Her eyes stung. They calmed down to watch as the astronauts planted an American flag, and as they guided back and forth across the heavenly body that hung in the sky outside, brought all the way there by an amazing machine built by men, they'd flown across the sky, they'd lived, and now they walked on the moon. What a thing to be alive to see. What wasn't possible now? Terry had another beer and imagined meeting Stacy's lab rat. The psych building wasn't one Terry had ever visited for classes. She found it tucked away in the back corner of campus, three stories tall, shadowed by trees, the branches reflecting off their windows. The canopy swayed under a gray sky that promised rain. A gleaming Mercedes Benz and two large black vans were parked along the curb beside the building. Despite there being plenty of open spots in the lot, Given that there were fewer students on campus during the summer. Murder vans, Terry thought. The irony. Maybe I am finally onto something. In the light of day, she'd found the idea of some important experiment happening here seemed less than likely. Here she was anyway. When she'd asked Stacy what she needed to know, she claimed Terry could just show up at the room upstairs. She'd also given Terry a comforting farewell. It's your electric Kool-Aid acid test funeral. Terry pulled the glass front door open and immediately encountered a woman in a lab coat with a a clipboard waiting inside. She had chestnut curls, a large forehead, and a no-nonsense way about her. This building is closed today, the woman said, unless you're on the list. Was she a doctor or a grad student? Terry had never met a female doctor. But she knew they existed the list terry asked another person came in behind her and barreled right into her almost knocking her over terry straightened and looked over her shoulder to see a girl in coveralls make that greasy coveralls who grinned at terry's appraisal sorry the girl said with a shrug i thought i was late it's fine terry couldn't help but smile back the two of them next to each other couldn't be more different. Terry was in a neat skirt and blouse set, her hair set in loose rags the night before, so it fell in soft ways now. The girl in the coveralls had grease under her fingernails too, hair that could be described as combed at best, and freckles sprinkled on her cheeks. A tomboy. A few years ago, she wouldn't have even been allowed on campus in pants. Your names, the, woman's, the woman with the clipboard said, I have to check that you're expected. Alice Johnson, the girl said, cutting right in front of Terry. I don't go here. I'm from town. The woman nodded. You're on the list. That was a surprise. Terry definitely wasn't. For all she knew, Stacy wasn't either. But the woman and Alice looked at Terry, and suddenly it was her turn to prove she should be here. And you? The woman asked. Stacy Sullivan. Terry lied, wondering if she was in the wrong place. The woman glanced down at the list and then up again. Terry's pulse drummed. Oh, here you are, the woman said and made a check mark. Perfect. You've been in this building before, correct? Go up to the third floor and check in with my colleagues there. What is all this? Terry hesitated. I, uh, don't remember it from last time. This is a new recruitment process, the woman said. It, w- it will become clear upstairs. As they walked further inside, Alice said to Terry, Good, because this is my first visit. Terry had to fight with herself not to ask Alice if she knew anything else about what was going on. She managed, barely. She paused next to the stairwell door. You want to just walk up? The elevators in these old buildings can be so slow. No, Alice said, rejecting the idea. I love riding in elevators. Oh, okay, Terry said, because what else could she say? Alex relaxed, relaxed into a smile. They walked the short distance to the elevator bank and waited and waited until the car came, the door sliding open by grudging inches. This is an old one, Alice said, running a hand along a metal edge, sounding admiring and excited as she boarded. Terry didn't point out that an elevator's old age made most people less enthused to get on. Alice was an odd bird. No wonder she'd turned up for a psychic experiment. Still, Terry liked her. You said you're from town? Terry asked. I grew up an hour or so away, Larrabee. Family of stonies, Alice said. I work for my uncle's garage. Specializes in local heavy equipment work. I wish I was mechanical, Terry said. Alice shrugged. We're all mechanical. Body's just another kind of machine. Fair enough. No heart in there? Terry asked, teasing a little. Sure, the heart's the pump that keeps us going, Alice said. The doors began to open onto the third floor taking as much sweet time as they had below. Alice paused. I could fix this with the right parts, you know. It's not broken, just a little bit from its original splendor. That would teach Terry to judge someone by the grease of their coveralls, the original splendor of a university elevator. Hopefully it won't come to that, she said. Alice shot her a grin. Hopefully. So you said you haven't been here before. Terry blurted out the question. No, Alice said. My uncle saw a newspaper ad last week looking for college-age women with remarkable skills. I answered. Got a letter that said to show up here. A new recruitment process, the woman had said. How was Terry going to make it in? What counted as a remarkable skill? They got off the elevator. Alice giving it one more gentle pat, and entered a bland hallway flanked by doors and flyers' advertising experiments. Only a single door was open, and so Terry figured that would be the place. The doorway was wide enough to accommodate her and Alice side by side, which was good, because Alice refused to either go in front of or behind Terry. Like everything about Odd Alice so far, it was charming. Another lab-coated person waited there. This one, a man with newscaster hair and thick-rimmed glasses. He handed them each a sheet of papers and a pen. Release forms, he said. Fill them out until you're called back. Thanks for the pleasantries, man. He motioned them to a de facto waiting area where chairs had been added. Six other women were already there, college age. Though if Alice was a tale, not not all attending college and one man their age, with long brown hair, a Jesus beard, and bell bottoms. Terry and Alice had to separate because the only two chairs were across from each other. Alice sat behind a young black woman reading a large textbook who made Terry look sloppy by comparison, let alone Alice. She wore a trim purple suit, the latest style. Modest, but fashionable. You from town, too? Alice asked her. The woman's hair curled to accentuate a thought and pretty face which she turned on Alice. I grew up here, she said. Gloria flowers. Those, Alice said. Yes, Gloria said. Those flowers. Alice's eyes widened and her stage whispered across and she stayed was her across to Terry. Her family runs a giant store in a florist's. Flowers, flowers. I'm sitting right here, Gloria said, and added, it's flowers, flowers, and gifts. Did you see the ad in the paper too, Alice asked? No, Gloria said. I'm also a student here, biology. No offense, Mint, Alice said, her cheeks going pink. I mean it. My mouth gets ahead of me. You should have heard her admiring the elevator, Terry said. Alice shot her a grateful look. Terry leaned forward and offered Gloria her hand. Gloria hesitated a second and then shook it, holding her textbook to her chest. Something fell out of it and onto the floor. A comic book. Gloria's eyes widened in mortification. Terry reached down to pick it up. X-Men, the brightly colored cover, proclaimed. I used to love Archie's girls, Betty and Veronica, she said, handing it back. This is a little different, but Gloria smiled. Cool, Terry said. It's nice to meet another student. She hesitated, realizing she couldn't give her real name. Not yet. I guess I'm just refused then, Alice said. Don't mind me. The man cocked his head to one side and nodded at Alice. You're the smartest one here, he said knowingly. I'm Ken. I thought they only wanted ladies, Alice said, apparently not into flattery. I'm psychic, he said, barely above a whisper. You are, Terry asked. He sat back. Of course I am. That's how I knew to show up. Of course he is, Alice echoed, and Terry had no clue if she meant it or was poking fun. The women on either side of them were clearly attempting not to be appalled by everything going on around them. Terry found she was enjoying herself and exchanging looks with Alice and supposedly psychic Ken and Gloria thought they were awesome. They were A man in a lab coat opened a door at the back of the suite. Gloria flowers, he said. Gloria slipped her comic book back into her textbook with a wink, rose, and followed the man back into a hallway. Terry really did like all three of them. There were only three. There were only the two of them left. Terry and Ken. And hours had gone by. The release forms were intense and jargon-filled and gave Terry a queasiness in her stomach. She was right about this experiment being a big deal. The forms weren't from the university. They were from the United States government. Something called the Office of Scientific Intelligence. It said there could be stiff penalties up to and including imprisonment for disclosure of any activities that took place involving the participant. That implied things were going to happen that needed to stay secret. Terry and Becky's dad had served in World War II, and he had seen some terrible things there. He never talked about them in front of the girls, but Terry had heard him wake up with a shout one night and snuck out to see what was wrong. She'd ended up crouched by her parents' bedroom door in her nightground eavesdropping. Her dad had told her mom about a camp camp they'd help bring people out of at the end their own people crammed together like sardines thin as skeletons And those were the ones who lived he had dreams he said dreams where he worked at the camp and didn't do anything to stop it you'd never do anything like that her mom had reassured him it's not in you i'd like to think not he said but I know a lot of the men who worked there must have felt the same way before the war. A lot of their wives, too. It could happen here. That's what wakes me up. No, it couldn't, her mom had said. I like that you think that, honey. I don't know if I could stand life if I couldn't. I can't even understand how hard that would must be, Bill. Terry had felt such love for them both in that moment. Her dad hooted to witness such horrors that he questioned even himself. Her mom believed in him when he wasn't sure. Her dad always watched the news every single night and told them how important it was to stay involved. What a gift the right to vote was. How they should always be on alert that you never knew if it would be your turn to make sure freedom was preserved. Terry had taken those lessons seriously. Becky and her mom had always thought too seriously, but her dad had been proud of her. And so, here she was. Excitement and nerves coiled together, tied as springs inside her, as she read on. She hesitated when she got to the end. Then she signed her real name. Stacy didn't want to be mixed up in this, so Terry would have had to go forward as herself, somehow. Stacy Sullivan? the man in the door called. After this last moment of impersonating her friend, anyway, Ken gave her a look. Is that you? Interesting that he phrased it as a question. Uh, yes, Terry said and leaped to her feet. It was only then that she noticed the man who'd called her name was a different person from before. He was lean and handsome, with a shock of neatly styled brown hair and a mostly unlined face. But when his attention settled on her, she felt like her temperature dropped several degrees. He smiled, a crinkle of the eyes at the edges. Miss Sullivan? You're just nervous. Terry rushed forward, almost dropping her release forms because of course she did. She settled her purse over her arm and clutched the papers tight against her. Present. He motioned for her to step past him. Right down at the end, last door on the right. The door to a large, cluttered room stood open. An exam table waited a few feet inside. She lingered by it as she took in the rest of the space—very psych department leftovers: two gurneys and posters of diagrams, and strange equipment with wires and tubes, tables and stacks of notebooks, a microscope—or microscope that didn't look used—shoved in a corner. She spotted a model of a brain divided into pale pink sec- sections that could be taken apart or put together. Sit, the man said, waving his hand to the exam table. He had a tone of authority, like he was used to giving commands. Terry hesitated, then perched on the edge of the table. Her feet dangled, a reminder she wasn't on solid ground. The man stood looking at her. Finally, when the silence began to get awkward, he asked, And you are? Before she could decide how to answer, he continued. I know you're not Stacy Sullivan. Shit. That was quick. How? The question slipped out. According to the notes made by the University Staffer who provided her name, Stacy Sullivan has curly black hair. She's five three, brown eyes, average IQ. Terry was offended on Stacy's behalf. You, the man continued, are five eight, with dark blonde hair and blue eyes. My assessment of your intelligence depends on why you're here claiming to be Miss Sullivan, but I'm going to guess it's above average. So, who are you? His tone was casual. However, Terry had expected this to go. This wasn't it. Well, you're not Stacy's lab rat either, Terry said, realizing it was true. Not only was this scene completely different from Stacy's story, but no one would describe this man that way. The guy who gave her drugs that made her feel weird last week. The reason she didn't come back. So who are you? She wondered if he'd answer. He shook his head in something that might be amusement. I'm Dr. Martin Brenner. That was a university psychologist working on a subcontract. They have a habit of botching the procedures. That's why we're taking this work over. He paused. Your turn. "'Fair enough. I'm Terry Ives, Stacy's roommate,' she said. "'And so I have no idea if you meet any of the screening criteria set up for this experiment,' Dr. Brenner said. "'I talked to some of the others outside. They answered a newspaper ad. "'How strict can it be?' he stilled, giving her that long-considering look again. "'She went on, encouraged by not being kicked out yet. "'Terry stood up so they'd be face-to-face.' Not him living above her. I volunteered to take Stacy's place because I consensus is important. It's too weird otherwise. Labs don't call college age women in to give them drugs. Not just for that, at least. What is it you think this is then? Dr. Brenner asked. Terry shrugged. I read the release forms. All I can tell is that whatever this is, it's something big. I want to be a part of it. Hmm. The grunt hit a skeptical note. What do I need to qualify? She asked. Tell me. Are you single? Andrew's face flashed in her head. I'm unmarried. Healthy? Yes. I've never missed a single shift at the diner where I work. He nodded approving. Have you ever had sexual intercourse? She went stiff. This wasn't the kind of conversation women had with unfamiliar men. Unfamiliar, unfamiliar government doctors seemed even less appropriate. I'm afraid I need candor from my participants, he said with a tone of apology. Yes. Terry didn't elaborate. Another nod. And have you ever given birth? No, she said. Are you strong-willed? Terry considered. I'm here, aren't I? I suspect you do meet the basic require, criteria, but... He paused, studying her. He didn't seem sold. Not yet. She searched her memory for what Alice had said about the ad- the advertisement in the paper. She didn't think he'd be interested in the qualities she might list in her outstanding abilities column. Able to serve six to eight tables without forgetting anyone's order. harder than it sounded. Never mixing up calf and decaf, doing homework at the last minute, and still getting decent, decent grades. Making Andrew laugh when he didn't want to. Occasionally cheering up Becky. And I am remarkable, she said. Fine, he said, as if a scale had tipped. Or maybe he was humoring her. I suppose you are. Now sit down. Terry hated being told what to do, but again, she sat. Andrew was parked behind the vans outside the site building in his emerald green Plymouth Barracuda fastback, which he lovingly washed and detailed at least once a week. He'd insisted that Terry might need a ride if Stacy's experience was any indication. The day had stretched out longer than she'd expected. He must have been waiting a while. She waved at Andrew as she trotted across the grass and tried to decide how much of what had happened inside she planned to tell him. He was skeptical about the wisdom of her coming here, though he was nice about it. She climbed into the car. I'm starving, she said stalling. You want to go somewhere for a bite? my treat i take it you got paid the 15 dollars andrew said looking her over like she like he was making sure she was in one piece sure wherever you want to go let's go to the starlight terry suggested it was friday night and she didn't have to work until 9 a.m the next day summer heat made the evening evening feel like a warm oven in other words the perfect driving weather The movies wouldn't start for a couple of hours, but they could get a prime spot and the little cafe would be open already. You wanted to see the wild bunch. I think it's still playing. Your wish. He put the car in gear, steered them out through the mostly deserted campus. I was about to storm the building to see if they kidnapped you. How was it? Were you right or wrong? Right, I think. Terry gathered her hands in her lap. Really? Really? Yes. To her relief, he didn't question it. What happened? So far, the daughter just asked me lots of questions, but he agreed to let me stay in. No mysterious injections, Andrew said, glancing over. No mysterious injections, she echoed. It was true. But I think it was a different guy. Next time, who knows? It, it did feel like something that matters. The radio announcer gave the latest Vietnam death toll, reporting on a battle. Andrew reached over and turned up the radio. Another buddy of Dave's from high school died over there. They all knew people who died over there. Terry could see their faces easily. She always pictured the boys who'd been killed as their high school yearbook photos. Smiling out, black and white, trapped. Andrew was on a student deferment, but she knew he was nerve. He felt nervous about graduating the next spring. The only talk they'd had about it indicated he would enroll in grad school and stay in school perpetually as long as he needed to. It's so awful, Terry said, loathing the understatement. Some things were terrible enough that trying to describe them in words never seemed to work. Andrew nodded and kept listening to the news. Terry thought about her final moments with Dr. Brenner. She had convinced him at last in some ways she didn't fully understand to classify her as a high potential. The rest of the sessions would take place off-campus in a dedicated government lab. He conceded it was important research on the cutting edge. Exactly what that meant, she still had little idea. She had to be back at the psych lab in three weeks, from where they'd they'd ride to the outside facility each week thereafter. As long as it doesn't interfere with my studies, was all she'd said. But inside, she glowed like a star shone in her chest, proud. She'd have to keep this quiet around Becky. Her sister didn't soak up the same lessons from their dad. When Terry would write letters about the war and send them off to their congressman, Becky said it was better to know now that people like them had to work hard to survive rather than be pumped full of hot air thinking they could change the world for the cost of a stamp. Maybe Becky would never have to know what Terry was doing at all. I just... I don't know how we can trust the government anymore, Andrew said. They're supposed to work for us. Preacher to choir. I know, Terry said. She reached over and lowered the volume on the radio. They did the moon too, though. Science did that. JFK told them to do that, he said. All they do now is send more of us to die. Terry decided not to fill him in on who precisely was running these experiments yet. Scientists from the government. It might give him a stronger reason not to support her involvement, and she didn't want to fight about it. Her mind was made up. I'm getting popcorn and a hot dog, Terry said, possibly a slushie. Andrew shot her a wink. Now you're talking, Big Spender. End Chapter 1